Now, I want everybody to the best of your ability, I want you to think about something. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a Jewish man, that you are a Jewish woman, and you're living in first century Palestine. You're living in the Jewish land uh, and you love your family. You love your family, you love your people, you love your land, you, you love your nation. Uh, you're living in the land of your forefathers. Your, your father lived there and his grandfather and his grandfather and great grandfather. And so you live in the land of your forefathers, but you also live in the land where the fathers of your faith first lived, Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. Uh, you live in the land of promise. That, that's what it's been called for generations. But yet for you, a first century Jewish man, a first century Jewish woman, it doesn't feel like a land of promise. It feels more like a land of curses because you and everybody else, you're living in an occupied territory. And every day you're reminded of it because the Roman soldiers, they're standing their post and they're always making their presence both known and felt. Uh, you love the storied history of your people because all of your people do. You love the storied history of your people, but as a first century Jewish man, as a first century Jewish woman living in Palestine, even though you love the storied history of your people, it, it's very difficult, almost impossible for you to dream about a better future for you, your family, your people, your nation, and the land where you live. Your circumstances, your own personal set of circumstances, not to mention your national set of circumstances being an occupied territory, but, but your personal set of circumstances, it makes faith difficult. It makes your faith difficult. The difficulties of your life and the pain of your life has, has brought you to the point where you have started questioning the goodness of God. And, and not only the goodness of God, but you have even gone so far on occasion to question the very existence of God because life is hard. And it's just not that life is hard in some cliche sense, your life, it's terrifyingly, tragically, painfully, it's hard. And the only thing that you have to hold on to, the only thing that you really have to find solace in, the only thing that you have to hold on to beyond the immediate set of circumstances and the people in your life are the stories and the promises that have been passed down from one generation of your people to another generation of your people. Stories from the days of the patriarchs, stories about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how God's presence was with them, and stories about God's promises to them. And those stories get talked about at dinner because there are no social media accounts in those days. There's no television, there's no radio. This is the media of your day. This is the narratives of your day. This is the stories that are talked about when stories are told. Then there's the stories of the great deliverers, the great leaders, of your people's past, people like Moses and people like Joshua, uh, judges, such great stories, Athenial who you know, freed Israel from oppression and brought in 40 years of peace and people tell that story and they, they think to themselves, what would it be like to have an Athenial in our day? And then there's stories like Gideon and his 300 before the Spartans ever had their 300 and a movie was made about it. Gideon had his 300 which defeated the Midianites and what a great story. There's stories about Deborah and Ehud, the famous left-handed warrior who went on a clandestine mission and actually assassinated an oppressing king in order to set the people of God free. 
There's all those stories that people tell and retell and tell and, and retell. And then there's the stories of the golden age, uh, the age of the Jewish kings, stories from kings like David and David and Goliath and, and the many defeats that David had over his enemies and, and his son Solomon, who, who really ushered in the golden age. And even when foreign dignitaries would come to Solomon, they would leave saying the half has not even been told about the glory of Solomon and his kingdom. It was days of independence. It was days of autonomy. It was days of prosperity. It, it was time of hope, a time of expectation, a time where promise permeated the air. There was, there was talk of dynasty among the people of Israel because there was this promise that was said to have been given to David that one of his future heirs, one of his future offsprings would set over a kingdom that would never end, a kingdom that would never falter, a kingdom that would never fail, a kingdom that would never be defeated. And if you lived in the first century in Palestine, if you're a Jewish man or a Jewish woman, these were the stories you knew. These were the promises you had heard your entire life. Now you may have not taken them seriously, but you would have known them nonetheless. They would have colored the way that you saw the world in, in ways that you didn't even realize that it was affecting how you saw the world, how you interpreted what was happening around you. And then as you're living in first century Palestine, as a Jewish man, Jewish woman, living your oppressed life in an occupied territory, doing the best you can to survive from hand to mouth, because that was how everyone lived, hand to mouth, your taxes are painfully high. Uh, some of us know what that's like even today, but your taxes are painfully high and they're getting higher and higher. You know a lot of your friends who've lost their generational land. They've lost their generational real estate because they couldn't keep up with the taxes and so they had to borrow and borrow and borrow. And when they couldn't pay back, they had to kind of go into a type of slavery. And what had been in the family for generations, it was lost and it was devastating, it was heartbreaking. And you see this, you hear this every day. You've lost confidence in the religion of your people because you know that it's ruled by a bunch of hypocritical aristocrats down in Jerusalem who know nothing about your way of life, know nothing about your struggles, know nothing about your story, nor do they seemingly care anything about your story. Their religion is padding their own pockets. And they grow wealthier and more powerful while your life pretty much stays the miserable existence that it is. And you've lost confidence in religion. You don't have time or the energy to dream about the future because you're just merely trying to survive the present. Then out of nowhere, people start talking. There's a buzz in the air and people are whispering and people at the town square and people at the market People are talking amongst, amongst themselves about a carpenter, a carpenter's son from Nazareth, a rabbi, a rabbi that's got everybody talking from north of Jerusalem all the way up to Galilee and Capernaum and even beyond. And everywhere this rabbi, this carpenter's son, everywhere he goes, there's a crowd that's drawing near. And, and people, they, they want to hear what he's going to say because they say of him, no one has ever spoke like this man, this carpenter's son from Nazareth, this rabbi. And there's something more than just charismatic about him. There's something magnetic about him that just draws you in. Something so seductive, something so attractive, something that you can't even explain, but you can't stop listening and you can't turn away. Crowds are gathering and you're hearing about it. Your friends are talking about it. And not only are people gathering to hear what he says, but they're paying attention to how he says it. 
And then they're talking amongst themselves about what he is saying, what it might mean for them, what it might mean for their family, what it may mean for the nation, and maybe just maybe what it might just mean for the entire world. This is what you're hearing about. This is what people are talking about. What was his message? This carpenter from Nazareth, this rabbi, what's he saying that a lot of people find so intriguing, so attractive and so hopeful? What is it that he is saying that for some people it's so offensive, it's so threatening, it's so dangerous? Matthew who wrote maybe one of the earliest gospels and biographies of Jesus, Matthew, he gives us a passage, and as he writes a very specific storyline in his gospel, and as he writes a very particular uh, biography of Jesus with a very uh, specific agenda that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, but as he writes the biography of Jesus, he gives us a summative statement. He gives us a, a statement that in, kind of just captures everything that Jesus was doing and everything that Jesus was saying. And so in this moment, we get a little insight what it would have been like to be in first century Palestine to hear all of these people talking because everywhere Jesus, the carpenter's son from Nazareth, this rabbi, everywhere he went, people were showing up to hear what he was saying. And so the question is, what was he saying that was so attractive, but so offensive, so intriguing, but so threatening, so hopeful, but so dangerous? And this is what Matthew says. He says, leaving Nazareth, Jesus, he went and lived at Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And Matthew then begins to do something in, in his literary way of writing. He, he reaches back generationally and he reaches back to one of the Old Testament Jewish prophets, a guy by the name of Isaiah. And he reaches back some 700 years to draw a corollary, to draw a connection between what he has seen happen in real time, in his time, and as Matthew writes this after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, after the resurrection, he's writing this down and he's drawing connections. He's beginning to look back with 2020 hindsight. He's beginning to be able to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And what he saw happen, what he was a witness to, he, he reaches back and he draws a connection from 700 years before. And he says, he moved to Capernaum. And he says, let me tell you why he moved to Capernaum, to fulfill to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. He said, so what I was watching happen in my time, what was playing out in real time, he said, this was not something new. It was actually something that was spoken of from of old. He says, all of this stuff that I watched happen, it was happening because the prophet Isaiah said that it would. And then he quotes the prophet, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people, the people, the men and women in first century Palestine, the people living in darkness, they have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Because from Matthew's perspective, something undeniable had happened, something extraordinary was happening. The people who were living in darkness were now beginning to see light. Darkness had fallen upon the land and the people had gotten used to the darkness. They had been living in the darkness, but all of a sudden Matthew, he quotes Isaiah and says, a light is now shining to the people who were living in darkness. Those who were living in the darkness of confusion are gaining clarity. 
Those who are living in the darkness of lies are now gaining the light of truth because something had changed, something was changing, reality was shifting, reality was different, reality itself was changing. A brand new day was dawning, the people living in the shadow of death. A brand new sun is shining upon them because something new was happening. A new era had begun. God was doing something new during this time. God was doing something new, but yet it was promised from of old. We'll talk about that more in just a minute, but listen to what Matthew says next. Listen to how he just takes everything that Jesus consistently talked about because Jesus, just like every other speaker, just like every other preacher, you listen to them long enough and you, you hear the reoccurring themes and those are not bad things. Uh, we live in a world where we think everything should be new and everything should be fresh and there always should be a new slant or a new angle. But Jesus was very repetitive and Jesus constantly drilled home the same ideas and the same theme over and over and over again. And so Matthew, it was very easy for him to say, let me tell you what this guy talked about all the time. I listened to every sermon he had and I'm telling you, he really only had one. He really only had one and this is what he says. He says, from that time on, from, from this time on, Jesus began to preach. Now we know that. But what did Jesus preach? Does anybody know? Just, I'm, I'm asking, anybody remember? Repent, right? We remember that part, repent. You probably knew it, but you're just afraid to talk out loud in church. Listen, you're at the creek, it's okay, all right? Repent, I mean, that's the message we all grew up. It kind of felt like, you know, God was always calling us losers. I mean, was the preacher really calling us losers, but he was supposed to be talking for God. He got a word from God and the word from God was always, hey, you're a loser, you're a piece of trash. You suck at life, so you need to repent. I mean, it's kind of what we felt like. We left and we felt down and, you know, an experience with God was just feeling bad about ourselves. You know, we go eat lunch, you know, how was church? Oh, it was great, you know, God was in the house. How you know, I feel terrible about myself. That's how I know God was in the house, I feel terrible about myself. It was horrible. I feel so, I'm like the worst person ever. And, and so, you know, it was like we associated chronic guilt. We, we associated this chronic sense of shame with, with the message of Jesus because it was only given to us partially. From that time on, Jesus began to preach repent, but that was not it. It just wasn't how we think of repent, you know, turn or burn, become a crispy critter. All of that stuff that, that maybe you grew up with or maybe it, it's kind of not what the preacher was saying, but it kind of felt like that's what the preacher was saying. But this is how Matthew says it. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now don't miss this because this is really important. Words matter, words matter. Especially when you read the scripture, words matter. From that time on, indicating a way of life, indicating a reoccurring theme, indicating like, hey, if you show up on any day to hear what Jesus is talking about, this is pretty much the message. This is the one-liner, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he was talking about. That's what people were talking about that he was talking about. Repent, stop. Just stop. Stop what you're doing. Take a time out. Something has happened. This was his message. Something has happened. Something is happening. And it's going to force you. It is forcing you to revisit everything you think you know about everything. Something has happened. Something is happening. It's going to force you to rethink everything you thought you knew. 
And it's gonna force you to make a decision. It's gonna force you to make a choice. It's gonna force you to choose sides. Something's happened. And what's happened is so significant, you're gonna have to revisit everything. Not most things, but everything you thought you knew about all the things you thought you knew about. Something's gonna cause you to rethink and reevaluate everything. Everything about God, who he is, what he's like. Everything about how you see yourself in the mirror, how you think of yourself, how you explain your existence, how you explain the existence of life and other people around you. What you think of when you think of this world, what you think of when you think of the cosmos, what you think about when you think about your place in it all. You're gonna have to rethink and reevaluate all of it because something has happened. Something has happened that's gonna cause you to make a choice to either radically reorganize your values and your priorities or not. Something has happened that's gonna cause you to perhaps redefine all of your definitions about what is right, what is wrong, what is good, and what is best. Something has happened, something is happening that's gonna cause you to stop and rethink and reevaluate and revisit and perhaps reorganize your life around something that has happened, something that has changed. Repent, well, why would anybody stop and rethink everything? Why would anybody stop and revisit everything they thought they knew about God and people and everything around us? Jesus said, because the kingdom of heaven has come near and it's gonna demand a choice it's gonna demand a decision. It's gonna demand that you choose sides. That was Jesus's message everywhere he went. So I have a question for you. Forget I just told you all of that because now you kind of know the answer. But when you think of Jesus's most notable message, what comes to mind? For many of us, if we were just really honest, and many of us, for some, based on the way you were raised, maybe it was repent. Repent, you know, say you're sorry for your sins. You know, get right with God, all of that, repent. Maybe for some of us, when we think about the most notable message of Jesus, we, we think of love your neighbor as yourself. Or, or even beyond that, love and bless your enemy. Pray for those who mistreat you. Forgive those who sin against you. Maybe for some, you know, it's turn the other cheek or go the second mile or choose to be last because somehow those who are last are first. Choose to serve. Serve everybody else and don't serve yourself because that's true greatness. Put other people's good in front of your own good. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Oh, we could just go on and on and on with perhaps the, the front runners the top contenders for the most notable message of Jesus. But I want you to think about this because many of us, we've never thought about this. Those points, those teaching points of Jesus that we all love and you know, we kind of give a thumbs up to sometimes we're like, I don't know, but you know, thumbs up sounds great. works well on a t-shirt and you know, it plays well in political speeches, you know, all that. It's just like make nice, play nice, be nice, be good, all of that. It's like, yeah, th th I love that, I love that. But really when you think about those things, they make absolutely no sense whatsoever. Alone, if you just take them out, extrapolate them, bring them out, put them, hang them on a door all by themselves, they don't, they don't make sense by themselves. Matter of fact, you, you pull them out and you, you put them alone and they sound a bit ridiculous. And they could possibly just be described as fairly bad advice. 
if some other things are not also true. If some things are not also true, love and bless your enemies may not be the best advice if some other things are not also true. If some more important things are not also true. If some things are not true that really makes the definitions of right and wrong clear and good and best clear. If some things that make that good and best for you and right for you, if those things aren't true, these other things that Jesus said, they just don't make any sense whatsoever. And according to Jesus, according to Jesus, the one concept, the one reality, the one thing that served as the foundational framework for everything that he would say, everything that he would do, the one foundational framework that would, that would bring into focus, that would give us the perspective of understanding what it is that Jesus came to do, why it is that he said what he said, what did he mean by what he said, and how all of that has to do with me and how it has to do with you and how it has to do with the world. There's no way that we can understand it outside of that one foundational framework that he kept coming back to time and time and time and time again, the kingdom of God. That was his most notable message. But Christians don't talk about the kingdom of God very much. We talk about salvation, we talk about forgiveness, we, we, we talk about the church, we talk about all these other things and it's almost like we're a little bit scared to talk about the kingdom of God because what is the kingdom of God? And is it the same thing as the kingdom of heaven? And is it the same thing as the father's kingdom and the son's kingdom? And, and you know, it's like, if it was the most notable message of Jesus, and I will make a case throughout this series that it is the foundational storyline of the scripture. Perhaps we should understand it more. Perhaps we should talk about it more. Perhaps it will bring clarity to us. Perhaps it will help us make sense of living in a world that does not accept our definitions of right and wrong. Perhaps it will help us make sense to how to navigate those minefields. Maybe, just maybe, it will help us have the clarity to know how to live our lives and to make painful choices. Painful choices that we feel like we're losing in the moment because we believe that we're gonna gain something eventually that it keeps us focused in a world that is so full of distractions. Maybe, just maybe, the kingdom of God, the message of Jesus, the thing that he kept coming back to time and time and time and time and time again. Maybe it's the key that unlocks the things that have been kind of hanging you up and kind of put some blinders on that you've not been able to figure out about the scripture. This was the heart and center of everything that Jesus said. This was the reason behind everything that Jesus did. He talked about the kingdom 50 times, at least 50 times in the gospel of Matthew alone. Most English Bibles have about 30 pages dedicated to Matthew. That's more than once a page. He spent more time and more words talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. They're synonymous than anything else, than anything else. It's the one thing Jesus couldn't stop talking about. So maybe we should talk about it. Throughout the gospels, especially Matthew, it's everywhere. It's in the writings of Paul. It's throughout the rest of the New Testament. Jesus was clear. This was the thing. This was the priority. This is the most important. Matter of fact, you remember this. He said, seek the kingdom of God above all else. Seek the kingdom of God above all else because somehow seeking the most important thing, which is the kingdom of God, that when you seek the most important thing, all the other important things that are not the most important things comes into perspective. 
And when you seek the most important thing, all of these important things that are not the most important thing, you are able to bring them in some type of cohesive alignment with the most important thing that actually results in you having life and peace and joy and contentment in a way that you've never had before. When you seek first the kingdom of God, which is the most important thing, it does not minimize anything else. It simply brings into focus and clarity every other important thing in your life. And it allows you to create a framework to organize your life around what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of God has come near. To be able to establish what your values are, what your ethics should be, your own personal definitions of what right and wrong is, to understand the past, to understand your present, and to be able to make some sense of where the future is going. All of that tied up into the kingdom of God. I I love this quote that I came across. Jeremy Tree said, the kingdom is not another thing on a long list of priorities. It is the framework determining the priorities. The kingdom of God, if you are willing to understand and embrace it, has the power to reorder your life with coherence and purpose. Uh, Nicholas Perrin in his book on the kingdom of God, he, he said, when Jesus announces the kingdom of God, he is introducing a reality that was meant to serve as a trustworthy compass for all that we do in life. It influences our past, our present, our future. It begins to influence our choices in what we do with our bodies. It begins to affect the choices that we make with our sex life, our money, our relationships, our attitudes towards people, our response to authority, where we place our hopes and dreams and where we're not willing to hang our hopes and dreams. And that's the reason the kingdom of God, it was threatening to some people. It was offensive and off-putting to some, but for some it was intriguing and attractive and it, it was hopeful. Jesus said it should be our greatest pursuit, our greatest concern. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. (laughs) Here's what I love about Jesus, though. He's a rascally little rabbit from time to time. Yet he never explains it. He never gives a direct definition of it. There's no record in the Gospels of anybody saying, hey, I have a question. Yes, you down there on the third row. You're talking about the kingdom of God. I've been to Capernaum, I've been to Nazareth, I've been down to the Jordan River Basin. It's kind of a thing, what is it? No, no record of anybody asking about it. But yet there seems to be this implicit assumption that everybody in the audience knew what he was talking about. So you're a first century person living in Palestine. When Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, the kingdom of God has come near. What is it that you heard? What is it that you understood? What is it that they knew that we don't? What is it that was clearer to them than it is to us? And it's all connected to something that linguistic specialists call cultural scripts. Whenever we we experience language, there are things that happen in in our brains that trigger association, word association, sometimes emotional associations, sometimes memory associations with particular words. Now, this doesn't happen a lot when it comes to, you know, everybody remembers nouns and verbs, and I promise this is not going to be a class. But nouns, you know, there's such a thing as concrete nouns and abstract nouns. You know, uh, a bottle of ketchup, that's a concrete noun. And whenever somebody says a bottle of ketchup, there's, there's automatically some things triggered. 
I mean, you can see it, you, you, you can see it. You've got a frame of reference, you've got a script that begins to roll. And so you can, you can begin to picture and understand what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a bottle of ketchup. Sometimes other things are connected to it. Some of you already moved on to French fries. I mean, you're thinking, God, to be the glory. Yes, that sounds great. I, have, I didn't know I wanted French fries until you just said that. And you know, or a jar of pickles. It's like, you know, you, you got an image and, and then you know what that is. You know what that looks like, you know what it smells like. But then you've got all these other things that begin to script and get connected to it. Now, that's easy when it comes to concrete nouns, but when it comes to abstract nouns like love, it's a thing, it's real, but our brains, our brains don't quite, not, quite doesn't know what to do with the abstraction. And, and so we, we try to, all of these different things, there's a much broader scope to, to how we would wrap our minds around, okay, well, what is love and all of the, the different things that run the scripts or justice, like what is justice, you know? And, it means different things to different people or economics, it's a thing, but, but what comes to mind, it's based on cultural scripts. So this is important because these cultural scripts are almost culturally informed. Uh, for example, if I said the word house to you, we would all kind of have a similar idea, but if we went to different parts of the world and maybe we went to Sub-Saharan Africa or we went to you know, parts of the extreme North or South and we said, house or home, there, there would be a whole other set of images that would come because there's a cultural embeddedness that, that drives our, our scripts. So when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God is coming near, when Jesus talked about repent, the kingdom of heaven is coming near, the people in the audience, they had a cultural script. There were some things, there were ideas and there were images and emotions and, and a whole host of things that networked together that they begin to understand, this is what this guy is saying. Jesus was not crucified because he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus wasn't killed by the Romans and by the Jewish authorities because he said, do unto others the way that you would have them do unto you. Jesus was executed publicly. It was a train wreck. It was a grave act of injustice. And it was connected to this messaging to the kingdom of God, which was political. It was economic, it was relational. It was all the things that brought electricity to what he was saying, energy to what people heard. So what we hear when we hear the kingdom of God is most likely different from theirs. When you think of kingdom and royalty, you may think of Elizabeth, God save the queen, right? or Game of Thrones, something comes to mind, but it's most likely not what the first century Jewish people thought. They had a whole range of ideas and images that came to mind. And so let me give you a working definition because today's kind of an introduction to this. And I know, I'm telling you, I, I don't know, I'm pumped about it. I, I don't know about you, you don't have to be, just fake it, that helps me. And, and so here, here's a working definition for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the king's reign over and through the king's people in the king's place. And this is not my definition. I borrowed it from Jeremy Tree, but it, it was the best one I could find and I couldn't, I couldn't improve upon it. But the, king, the kingdom of God is the king's reign over and through the king's people in the king's place. And we'll kind of unpack that over the next few weeks. But when Jesus' audience heard the kingdom of God had come near, there were some things that began to come up. There were some scenes and pictures. And the first thing I think, and I'll just, I'm gonna give these to you quick and then we're, we're, we're moving on. The first thing that probably came to their mind was creation. 
Because most of us have never been introduced to the royalty of the creation story or the kingdom language of the creation story. Most of us from Sunday school on, it's been in the beginning. But, but I want you to put on a brand new set of eyes and a brand new set of ears because it is the language of Genesis 1. And it does set the tone and the tenor for the rest of the literary expression of the scriptures for the next 65 books. Listen to what the writer in Genesis said. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's all of a sudden people in the first century and people in ancient languages would have recognized this as kingdom language, a king. What do kings do? They capture realms. What do kings do? They take territory. That's what they do. So God created heavens and the earth. He created a realm. And the earth was formless and empty. It was chaotic and it was dark and it covered the deep waters and the spirit of God hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light because that's what happens when kings speak. When kings make declarations, when they make proclamations, what they say is to be done, it gets done because that's the idea behind what Moses is writing. When kings say it, it gets done. Kings in the ancient world, Kings, as, in, as, as understood in those days, kings were always people who rescued people from chaos and brought order and protection to them. So we're introduced to the king of the cosmos, God, king, who wades into the chaos and the disorder of a non-created reality. And then he steps in and he brings order to the chaos. He's bringing beauty to what is void and empty. And so then he creates, you know, the birds and the fish and the land and all of that. And then he gets down to humanity. And this is what the writer says. Then God said, let us make human beings in our own image. So God stamps himself into his created beings, human beings, men and women. He, he breathes himself in what is true of God. Now listen to this, this is big because this is a big deal about self-esteem. This is a big deal about how you see people and talk about people. And this is from the very beginning. What is true of God is placed upon you. What is true of God is placed within you. The image of God that you bear, the image of God that I bear, we're all image bearers. They will be like us, they will reign. They will reign. This is kingdom language. This is language of what royals do. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals in the earth and small animals that scurry along the ground. So God places his image on them as the king. And God puts humanity, he puts Adam, he puts Eve, as the story is told, as rulers. The first person introduced in the, in, in the Bible is Adam, and Adam is the first king. Adam is presented as this universal king that God the creator, God the king of the cosmos has placed his image upon this man who is to rule over the created order. He goes on, he says again, so God created human beings in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, govern it. That, that's, that's what royals do, that's what kings do, reign over the fish and the sea, the birds and the sky and the animals that scurry along the ground. This is all kingdom language. Where does God do this at? In the garden. Who were the people who had gardens in the ancient world? Kings, kings had gardens. And God created the Garden of Eden because that's what kings have. Kings have a garden. And in that garden, he placed a co-regent, a vice-regent. He placed a subordinate ruler by the name of Adam 
who was to serve under God's kingship, but was to be a ruler in his own right, to govern over and rule, and was to take the order and the beauty of Eden and to push it to the extremes of this planet. What God had ordered and brought beauty to in the garden, man was called, humanity was called to take it as the vice regents, as the ruler, so to speak, and to take that beauty and order to the rest of the world. And to do this, humans were gonna have to make an important decision. They were gonna have to be able to make an important decision between what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is bad. And so the question, the, the, the narrative it builds, and so will humanity, will God's image bearers, will they allow God to be king? Will they allow God to define good and evil for them based on his wisdom and his unconditional love for them? Or will they want to define good and evil, right and wrong for themselves, even if it's at other people's expense? So what happens? Well, you know what happens. Adam and Eve rebel. They decide there's gonna be a coup d'etat. They decide that they're gonna start their own kingdom and they start an alternative kingdom where guess what? They get to sit as king and queen over their own life and they get to make their own decisions and they get to define what is right and what is wrong. And so that began, that began to be the beginning of the age of the kingdoms of man. As man has decided we want our own kingdom, we don't wanna serve under the kingship of God, we want our own kingdom, we want our own independence, our own autonomy, we want to define for ourselves what is right for me, what is good for me, what is best for me. And so the kingdoms of men are born. And thus everything that's wrong with the world, power and injustice and equality and violence and all of those things are the fruit of this hostile takeover, this, this rebellion against the king who's creator. And this is what they're thinking of because this was the language the Jewish people understood. The second thing that they would have gone to was the promise because from Genesis three to Genesis 11, it's just chaos, all hell breaks loose. But in Genesis 12, something happens that, that changes the storyline. God singles out a new man. God singles out a new man who he will pull aside almost to recreate a people who will live out our original calling to serve under the kingship of God so that God can rule in us and through us to reassert his rule here upon the earth. So he singles out Abraham and says, Abraham, you're gonna become an alternate family, an alternate nation, and you're gonna found an alternative kingdom that's gonna show the rest of the world and all the people around you what it's like when God rules and reigns over his people and his creation. And here's what he said to Abraham. I'm, I, I, I'm gonna give it to you quick so you can pick it up later. He said, but I'm gonna make you a great nation. I, and that's what every king wants. This is still kingdom language. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. And that's what kings were expected to do, to be a blessing to their people. He says, I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. And it was a promise that had kingdom implications. And Abraham passed it on to Isaac and Isaac passed it on to Jacob. And Jacob was eventually renamed Israel and his 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's a great story, but they end up in Egypt. But one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, he goes in as a prisoner. But then through an incredible turn of events, he ends up as the vice regent. He ends up as the co-regent. He is ruling and reigning in Egypt under Pharaoh. And it is a mirrored story of Genesis 1, 2. It's a story that is gonna be told multiple times throughout the Old Testament. 
that Joseph, he, he's the vice regent, he's ruling under Pharaoh. And so God's people, the descendants of Abraham, they are ruling and they are reigning in Egypt until the tide of public opinion changed. And there was a new Pharaoh that forgot Joseph and then they became slaves. And then they decided, hey, maybe God does need to be our king. And so they cried out for freedom and that brought them to the next thing that came to their mind when they heard Jesus say this, the Exodus, that God raised up Moses, who was the son of the king, who was also a type of co-regent or vice-regent, who was almost like a ruler, who was ruling and reigning as the son of Pharaoh in Pharaoh's court. And again, it's this thing that keeps on developing. He kills a man, flees to Midian. God shows up in a burning bush, says, Moses, I'm going to assert my leadership, my kingdom on this earth through you. And so what does Moses do? He goes down and God shows that he is king over creation. He's king over economies. He's king over politics. He's king over the kingdoms of this world. And Moses says, let the people of God go. And Pharaoh says, go. They get outside of Egypt. They sing a song. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver has hurled into the sea. I don't know what the melody was like, but the words are hard to sing. I can just imagine. The Lord is my strength, they sang, and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. And here's the first specific reference in all of the Old Testament. The very first specific one. The Lord reigns. Or as some say, the Yahweh is king forever. The Lord reigns forever and forever. And then what does God do? He takes them to Sinai. And he does what kings do. He gives them a law, a law to live by. But what do they do? There are people who now owe their king allegiance because he, what did he do? He rescued them out of chaos and disorder. And now he's brought them into order, into something beautiful, freedom and liberty. So they owe him allegiance. And what do they do when Moses goes up on the mountain? They get, they get bored. And so what did they do? They made a golden calf. They wanted a new king, a king that allows them to define their own definitions to good and evil and right and wrong, to live as they want, because that's what we've wanted since the garden. And that brought these people listening to Jesus. They're, they're thinking about the conquest of promise. And after 40 years of wilderness, and Joseph leads them in to the land of promise. And, and it's good for a while, but then Joseph dies, and there's a whole generation that rises up that doesn't know the Lord. It's 300 plus years known as the book of Judges. And it says, in those days, every person did what was right in their own eyes because what? There was no king. And so now it's like everybody started thinking about, we need a king and it brings them to the age of the kingdom. The people of God, they saw the Philistines and they said, hey, we need a kingdom like the people have a king, but God was supposed to be their king. And, but God was gracious and God allowed them to have what they asked for. And he gave them Saul, tall, dark, and handsome. And after Saul, he was a train wreck, came David, a man after God's own heart who received a promise, a promise that I've told you about many times, but it's so key to understanding the scripture. God promised David says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood will establish his kingdom. There it is, kingdom language. He is the one who will build a house for my name and will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. And it's this promise of kingdom and king and then comes civil war after Solomon and 10 tribes go north and they get judged and destroyed. Two tribes go south and Judah, they get the prophets. The prophets come and say, God's your king, but you keep turning your back on him. God is your king and you keep rebelling against him. God has rescued, out of, rescued you from disorder and chaos time and time again. And all you need to do is be loyal to him, but they killed the prophets. 
because we don't like when our kingship gets challenged. We don't like when somebody says we're not fit to sit on the throne of our own lives. So God allowed judgment to fall on the people of God and that was the exile period and they're all thinking this. Judgment comes through the Babylonians. People are taken captive. Jerusalem is destroyed. But all through that time, even though the people are removed and they're taken over to a foreign land, and this is where I end it, because this is, this is so good, and I hope it's as good for you as, as, as it is, because this is, this is so beautiful and this is so powerful. All through this time, the prophets continue to speak. And this is what they promise, and this is how they offer hope through some of the most tragically dark days in Israel's history. As the temple has been destroyed, the city is burnt to the ground, and thousands lay dead, and thousands more have been taken captive. People like Jeremiah say, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king, there it is, who will reign wisely and do what is just and do what is right in the land. In his days, the days of this king, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. Daniel, who was taken captive, and Daniel, here's one for you. Daniel mirrors the story of Joseph because Daniel is taken to Babylon as a prisoner. Then in prisoner, there's dreams and there's interpretation of dreams. And eventually Daniel is promoted to a vice-regent, a co-regent. He's ruling in Babylon, over Babylonians, underneath Nebuchadnezzar and his successors. And then Daniel, this prophet, he, he speaks and he says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, which is language of royalty. And he was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations, people of every language worshiped him. His dominion, kingdom language is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is the one that will never be destroyed. He said, it's like a rock that has been hewn down out of a mountain that keeps rolling up the kingdoms of this world. And then Zechariah, Zechariah, he throws in his message and he says, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. It's gonna happen. On that day, there will be one Lord in his name, the only name. Isaiah, you remember him? Matthew reaches back. This is, this is it, I promise I've broken my promise three times now, but this is it. Isaiah says, listen, listen, O heavens, pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Even an ox knows his owner and a donkey recognizes its master's care, but Israel doesn't know its master. My people doesn't recognize my care for them. Oh, what a sinful nation they are, loaded down with a burden of guilt. I wanted to be their king, but they would not allow me to be. They are an evil people, corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They've turned their backs on him. Why do you continue to invite punishment? Because that's what we do when we define what is good and best and right and wrong on our own terms. Must you rebel forever? Your head is injured and your heart is sick. And then he gets to this place and says, nevertheless, there'll be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness will see a great light. On those living in the land of deep, deep darkness, a light will dawn for 
To us, a child is born, and to us, a son is giving, and the government, royalty, will rest upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the greatness of, of his government, kingdom language, and peace, there will be no end. He will reign, kingdom language, on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it, upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And these were the cultural scripts that led to the advent of the king. When Jesus was born, his birth was announced as though it was the birth of a king. In his ministry, he spoke like a king, presenting values to the people of his kingdom, painting a picture of what the culture of that kingdom should look like. He spoke like a king when he said, a new commandment, a new law I give to you. He showed what God being king over creation looked like when he walked on water and he stilled the wind and the waves at the command of his word. He healed disease and took authority over it. And he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and they cried, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the son of David who comes in the name of the Lord. And it was like the arrival of a king. But things changed. And a week later, this king was crowned with thorns. And his throne was a cross. They took his lifeless body down. And two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they gave him the burial fit for a king. 75 pounds of perfume when normally people would get between two and five pounds. And then he arose, announcing the beginning of a brand new creation that one day would culminate with a new heavens and a new earth. And the good news of the kingdom is that you and I have been made children of the king kings and priests unto God, queens and priests unto God. And that's what they began to hear. That's what was so attractive. That's what was so offensive. And that's what we're gonna be talking about. The kingdom had come near because the king had come near and there would be no neutral ground. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open up our minds and hearts to the beauty and the magnitude and the weight of this message, this narrative. I pray God that you would help us to open up our hearts and ears for the next few weeks and God help us to learn and to realize why the news of the kingdom is good news for everyone. Help us to understand what it means to our past, our present, our future. Thank you that the king has come near and the kingdom of God is near still. So Father, in this moment, speak into our hearts what we need to hear. For those who need to trust Christ, follow him. I pray that they'll take a moment to do that just now. For those of us who need to declare our allegiance and our loyalty to you, 
I pray we would do so just now. There is no neutral ground. And we're going to discover that in the weeks to come. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, and everybody said,